So Zach Slayback is a principal at the 1517 Fund. It's a venture capital firm that invests in deep tech and dropouts. Um, he writes a substack that I have fallen in love with that I cannot endorse higher, and I say this genuinely. It's called Slayback to the Future, formerly titled Adventure Capitalism. He writes about venture capital, trends in Silicon Valley, the education system, and much more. We had met on Clubhouse while I was ranting about the disastrous effects of OnlyFans of both consumers and producers. He's a brilliant guy, and you should definitely check out his work. Zach, welcome to the pot. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Um, all right, so there's this really great quote from Alex Kantrich that he writes, America's faith in institutions is now falling across the board. Confidence in organized religion, labor, big business, public schools, newspapers, the military, the presidency, the medical system, banks, TV news, the criminal justice system, the Supreme Court and Congress all fell from 2020 to 2021. And so he goes and he says, COVID and certain ex-presidents attacks on institutions has something to do with this decline, but they don't account for the entire decline. And so this is a vague question and sort of what I want for this podcast is a conversation taken any direction you want. But what would you say is the reason for the sudden collapse of all these institutions? I mean, we can really dig into why I think this is, but I think our elites, if you want to call them that, are just really lame. And people have seen how lame they are. And COVID made that really obvious. The last year really made that obvious. The election made that obvious. Like, you have half the country that hated the last president, and the best they could be offered was somebody whose brain is tapioca pudding, right? Yes. That, that just tells you just how horribly uninspiring the people supposedly in charge are. And when you're constantly told that the people, that these people somehow should be in charge or deserve to be in charge or any of these number of things, it's, it, it, it makes you question, I think, the rest of the institutions that are around you. Now, I think some of the deeper seated things go to obviously there's this this trend towards um the breakdown in what we would call media institutions martin gurry has a, an excellent book that uh, i've been recommended for years and i finally got the chance to work through called revolt to the public kind of on this topic talking about like the arab spring and then the occupy wall street stuff and everything that's happened from there forward a big part of that is just you used to have information that was really concealed in what i think it's vox day but more popularly michael malice would call the cathedral and people are actually being able to like see behind the cathedral yes. and see that there's nothing there. Um, that's, that's a big part of it. But I think that over the last year in particular, we had such an opportunity, such an opportunity for the people who are supposedly in charge to show what an inspiring future we live in, what amazing opportunities we have in front of our, uh, ourselves, what motivating and selfless uh, actions people could take, you know, in this kind of like Kennedy-esque or Roosevelt-esque kind of like ask not what, what your country can do for you, but you, what you can do for your country. And they just drop the ball every single step of the way. We have somehow ended up in the place where the lamest midwits are the ones in charge of this country. Yeah. And again, yeah. supposedly in charge. And I think people just it's an insulting experience to realize like even if you're like a pretty average person, the people who claim to rule over you are like your inferiors or, or idiots and, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and can't bench more than 120. Yeah, right? like, no, I think the role inspiring public, in every sense of the word. Yeah. I, I think to go back, one of the interesting things you said that like I agree with wholeheartedly is that our politicians really drop the ball on like 
a, like a, a moment of really social cohesion that could have been like Trump every weekend could have been like, listen, guys, like it's tough. Things are, are seemingly bad, but like here is what we can do to unify the country. Yep. And then every and like really what we saw for the meeting, the left was like it really became like a political like jab in order to win. And they did a phenomenal job of that. And so I think one of the saddest things, like you'll see people and like normal Americans are like, these are the people and these are the idiots in charge of us. Like you'll look, you'll look at Cuomo and you'll look at all these like blundering idiots and you'll say like, you'll see like the Lori Lightfoot and you'll go, these are, these are our elites. Like before we were talking about whether we think our elites are good or evil. And so like my thought process and maybe disagree is that these elites have just abdicated their like duty to do good. And so like, they're simply like just lame. And like, if you're a young person today, and I want to talk about this later for, for young men, like you don't have someone to look up to really in the media as like an, in, an aspirational figure. Like those don't exist anymore for kids. And I think something that has to do with the rise of Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. was because like, I was doing a podcast with a friend of mine yesterday and so they asked me to give a roundup of people that I should like recommend people should follow. And you were one of those people. And it was like in between like a bunch of other people, Spencer Clavin and a bunch of others. And like the one theme was like, they're all people who like you can aspire and look up to and be like, that is someone who is going in, in a correct direction. That is what young men should, should be amplifying. Um, I want to touch on the college thing just very quickly. Right. I, I, I do. I want to, I want to like cap it off really quickly though. And, and I think, um, put succinctly what I think you're saying. We don't live in a society of role models. Yeah. There are no role models. Like you look at the people who are again, supposedly in charge and they're either depraved, like child diddling perverts. Right. Or, and, or they're just really, really lame in the case of like people like Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. Like imagine being the richest man in the world. And the most interesting thing you do is you hang out with Jeffrey Epstein. That is mm -hmm. legitimately the most interesting thing he's done. And it's evil. Mm -hmm. And, and the, <laughs> the second most interesting thing is that he's turned water from shit into drinkable water, which is great. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Like, okay, that is your thing now. Um, but yeah, I mean, these people like there's no, and I think that something has to do with, there's an interesting reaction right now on Twitter, which, uh, Bezos going to space. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of Bezos at all in any capacity, but I think the fact that we have billionaires who I would rather billionaires burn their millions going to space than doing what the Gates Foundation does. Yeah. And absolutely. so I think. And, and, and like, I kind of feel the same way at times towards Elon Musk. Like there's, there's a debate about how much substance is to a lot of the stuff that he ends up saying, but right. you know, obviously Tesla and SpaceX are impressive companies. Like say what you want about these people they're actually role models in a world that is totally, totally lost of role models, even right. within families. Like, they, they look at the popular media, and, and again, if you want to talk about this later, no, let's talk about let's talk about the Great. family now. Look, look, look at the popular media on on like what uh, father figures look like, right? They're either bumbling idiots or they're deadbeat dads, right? Or they uh, were deadbeat dads in some sort of, you know, like redeeming the hero kind of like Joseph Campbell story. It's like they come around and they end up inspiring their child. But you don't actually see any real like inspiring mater material in the popular culture about like you see Homer. Family. You see Homer Simpson. That's the father in every show. In Homer Simpson's defense, I was having this conversation with somebody on the other the other day. In, in the Simpson in Mac Groening's defense, like Homer Simpson is never mean to his family. Really, That's never true. mean, never mean to his wife. He's mean to his kids. 
but he's never mean it's to his justified wife. it's justified some some what we're talking some bullying is good some some bullying you know again the ideal amount of bullying isn't zero right yeah um but like yeah the the popular culture around fatherhood is terrible the popular culture around spiritual fatherhood is terrible uh, the only ever, the only time you ever see like Catholic priests, uh, for example, the classic example of like spiritual fatherhood, you know, like father so and so, in popular media is it's either playing off of the 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 clerical abuse of the last couple decades or they're exorcists. Yeah, that's like it. <laughs> like the po- the popular media certainly depicts this world in which men have no real uh, father figures. There really is this sort of, I think total total attack on fatherhood and so like the greatest indicator for childhood success is if your parents are married like even if you got divorced and remarried and got a new man in your life or you're a single mother like that is gone like your kids like will will statistically be worse off than if your parents got married and so there's an interesting thing that jd vance recently you know proposed is like every household they get like an additional vote for every child that they have and so i mean i thought that was interesting it's like well what proposals can we bring about that strengthen the family um like there's an interesting thing of like giving uh you know credits for every child that you have which i don't think is necessarily that bad um but like there, there are worse ways to spend to spend that money that is yeah we could spend it on like uh going to afghanistan and spending it on <laughs> right, spend 20 on, years and overthrow and unsuccessfully overthrowing the taliban well this is because their generals spend all their time on twitter attacking people unsuccessfully right calling rather- people putin chills right <laughs> right right yeah i saw that no, I, 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 I think in Hungary, if you have five kids and more, you never pay income tax again. You know, maybe I'm shilling for Putin here. But in Russia, I think if you have like 10, you get some sort of essentially like medal of honor. Yeah. Like, say what you want for these places. Like, yeah, Hungary and Russia aren't exactly like the paradigms of, you know, not lame uh, heroic future that I'm talking about. But I think there's something we can learn from them. And that's that there, there, there's something to aspire to in being like the normal person who goes out and has a family, does it successfully and finds meaning outside of work. Yeah. Something that I think is deeply, uh, deeply American is this idea that all of your meaning needs to be derived from something related to your work. That's why we're seeing these like weird proxy wars on, in corporate messaging in, um, even in, in corporate messaging, like internally, like there was a, a Google's head of cloud a couple of weeks ago. Uh, th- this surprisingly did not get as much uh, media attention as I expected it. to. So Google's head of cloud is uh, a, a, a gentleman of Arab descent, and he previously held some fairly anti-Semitic views. He has since like repented of those, and he wrote a big, long LinkedIn post about how how he came to change his views on that, right? And how he cha- he changed his views like decades ago on it, right? But he wrote a LinkedIn post saying like, hey, I used to have these beliefs that I think are wrong now. Mm-hmm. And here's why I think they're wrong. And I've thought they're wrong for years. And he was ousted from Google. <laughs> Even though this was like a public mea culpa, right. a mea culpa of something that uh, he had repented of years ago, mm-hmm. he was ousted for making his subordinates feel uncomfortable on the topic. Wow. So... We, we, we live in this culture that has put so much of our meaning in work. And I think this comes back to the universities in a big part, and the universities feed into it in kind of a two-way street. We've outsourced so many of our sources of meaning over the last couple of decades 
A big part of this, I think, is secularization. Uh, but people need to have some sort of source of meaning in their lives, and if they aren't, if they're, if they aren't able to graft onto, you know, the tried and true institutions that give that to them for the most part, they're going to invent their own. And I think for parents, it's largely been getting their kids successfully into university and getting them into like a university where they can put the bumper sticker on their car and say right. like, Oh, here's, here's like the nice, like Yale bumper sticker. My kid goes to Yale or something like that. But if you ask like a, a boomer or a gen, older Gen X parent, like what, what being a successful parent means, I think the average one would have a middle-class one at least would have a difficult time uh, finding an answer that doesn't tie back to either a job or education as a proxy for a job. I think one of the greatest schisms, I want to go back a little bit. Um, one of the greatest schisms I think that's happening on the right right now is whether you your metric for success as a society is GDP um, or how families are doing. And so during COVID, I remember like this S&P 500 was like, had, had rebounded back and everyone was like, these are great. I was like, it's fine. Like, a, it's it can be a metric, one metric, but we'll see that millions of people are now unemployed that previously had were gainfully employed. And so, like, I would much more like my metric for success is much more leaning towards like employment numbers than the S and P five hundred or suicide I, rate. Yes, yes. And so you you would see people, and I think this is this realignment that's happening on the right. Is I want a country that prioritizes the well being of the soul of the country. And in that, I think there are multiple things. I don't necessarily care that much about the GDP. It's one metric, but the metric that really matters is how many children are you having? How is the quality of life? How are people actually educated enough? And not necessarily on the college degree, but like, are they, are they like well-informed of what's happening around them civically? And so that is, I think, one thing that people are starting to come around to, at least on the right. There's this new, there's this new right that is emerging that is less about like less Cato Institute and more the American mind. And so one of the things that I just want to quickly get to is so Americans have been sold on the idea that you go to college, you spend four years, and then you graduate with a degree. Um, and before that, I want to say, like, my parents grew up in Israel. They grew up in a kibbutz, but they serve in the Israeli army. For, for women, it's three years. For men, it's four. And so there's always been this sort of four-year transition, transitionary period um, that you talk about, like, eternal adolescence, which I think is interesting, that I'd never heard before. Um, there's always been that four-year period where it takes for people to grow and mature. And this is what we've decided college to be for young people. And so there are two components to the trend that is happening right now in college education. One is, I think, the um, economic aspect. And the second, I think, is the social aspect. And there are two components to this. So in 2019, 35% of men and 36.6% of women over 25 had four years in college. College prices are skyrocketing. And so I think this has led to two detrimental effects. One is that everyone has a college degree and no longer, it loses value. And the second thing is, and this is one of the things that um, I find most fascinating, is the effects this has had on the dating market. And now this is how it goes. Men date across and down, women date across and up. But if more women are going to college than men, women tend to, um, they go for men who are equally or higher edu educational wise. Yep. And you can see that through, one of the great ways is through um, Tinder data where you'll see if you put a, if you put like a PhD or a master's degree, you get more swipes uh, than if you don't. And so 
one of the things, one of the metrics for uh, finding spouse is how educated you are. But the issue is if women um, are going for men who are of equal or higher educational attainment and they have higher educational attainment, there's already the schism. There's already right. this gap that's getting worse. Right. Um, but I want to start off with the economic and then the social. And so like where I was reading, I was reading your Substack, and I was looking at it, I was like, if I had to define this, I'd be like, you're a doctor in diagnosing decadence. And so it's like, <laughs> that, that's going to be my new LinkedIn line, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. It's like, I'm also very pessimistic and nihilistic. It's like, look at all the ills. And so like, what's your diagnosis on the current state of higher academia? How did it get this bad? I'm not sure if I'd say I'm pessimistic. I, I think I'm, I've been called a cynic, uh, but I think that just means I'm realistic. Uh, whereas the prognosis is yeah, separate from the diagnosis, right? I think the diagnosis is really bad. Um, for higher education in particular, yeah, we can think about how did we get here uh, and we can look at what the university historically was up through like the mid 20th century. Up through the mid 20th century, the university typically played uh, usually two or three roles, right? Uh, it was largely theological, like a lot of universities started with some sort of theology department or a seminary or something like that. Even in the United States, I think the only uh, colonial university that was not uh, attached to a religious denomination, I think, was Penn, uh, at least in, in the Ivy League. I know that that's the case. Uh, and so it was either theological or kind of a finishing school. We especially saw this more in like the 19th century, where if you were elite and you had an elite son, you know, you send your, your son to finishing school at the university, right? Right. Uh, where he could like learn how to be around a bunch of other elite people and do things that elite people do and then go work with other elite people. And then there was later on uh, in this process, this more scientific component. But even then, a lot of the scientific advancements that we saw during the industrial revolution, even the later industrial revolution, most of them came out of private laboratories. Uh, very, very few of them came out of university laboratories. And the idea of the university really being like the core science generator of a, of a civilization is a very 20th century idea. And I, I think won't prove to be a 21st century idea as well. It's a very 20th century idea, very much a Cold War era idea than anything else. But I think what happened was you had a bunch of people come back from World War II, they had the GI Bill now, and people are inherently mimetic, right? We, we look at what other people want and we say we want it. And we're also just generally very good at imitating people, right? People are way better at um, kind of like reverse induction than, than people think. So I think what generally happened uh, during the post-war era was a bunch of GIs came back, they looked around, they said, you know, I need to get a good job for Mrs. and myself. Well, what, what do all the people who are wearing the suits and ties have? What did they do? The reality is most of them just came from like more of an upper crust kind of part of society. Uh, but a lot of them went to university as well. And I think what happened was a lot of these GIs started to go to university. They had the GI Bill that helped them do that. Uh, then if you're a hiring manager and you're trying to hire, you're trying to reduce the number of applications you have to really go through one of the most reliable signals on like general conscientiousness and general IQ would be uh, certain credentials, right? right. Like, a, like a high school diploma for years and years and years, and then like a college degree. 
And increasingly, in particularly crowded fields like marketing and HR, you're now seeing like a master's degree kind of as a, a, a minimum credential for a job that previously only required a bachelor's degree. Right. So you have this, this constant dilution, as you alluded to, of the credential signaling power, because if everyone has the credential, it just doesn't mean as much that, that somebody has the credential. It's kind of like being a millionaire, right? Like in the United States today, you walk down uh, the street in a major city and you spit in a, any direction, you'll hit a millionaire, right. especially if you're surrounded by boomers. Like the reality yeah. is... Uh, a lot of people being a millionaire in the United States is just much less of an achievement than it was 20, 30 years ago. Part of that's inflation. Part of that's uh, Jack Bogle's uh, index fund revolution. Part of it's just demographic. Like, yeah, most millionaires tend to be older simply right. because they've had more, they have time. more time. Yeah. They have more time to accumulate wealth. Right. So you certainly saw this, this uh, credential in inflation or dilution of the signal uh, over the years and that has resulted in this, this kind of catch-22 where now it's like, well, in order to just get the entry-level job, you need the master's degree. So now more and more people will go and get master's degrees just to get the entry-level job. But it's clearly not sustainable. You can't mm -hmm. put off like getting an entry-level job until you're 25. You can't put it off till you're 29. That's not sustainable just genetically for any kind of uh, any kind of civilization, and this might be more sustainable if prices were normal. Like they, that's like the price for an education for for in the UK is twelve grand a year. Right. In the US, it's sixty, sixty-five, eighty at times. It's unsustainable. It's totally right. unsustainable. So you're going to see a crack in the system eventually. Like, yeah, if it's twelve k to go get a master's degree, you can do that while like working a job or while doing something else, or you can do it without like just totally destroying your ability to start a family down the line from an economic perspective. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we're, I, I think we're at a, a breaking point in this right now, you know, previously uh, before I worked uh, doing investments at 1517, mm -hmm. I was charged with going around two businesses as a separate company that I was involved with uh, going around two businesses, trying to talk to CEOs and hiring managers and presidents, you know, C-suite people typically, uh, or the people right under them to help get jobs for people who didn't have degrees, but like white collar jobs, mm -hmm. like marketing jobs and sales jobs, things like that. This was maybe 2014, 2015 when I started doing this. I, I can just tell you now, I've seen many fewer jobs that say a bachelor's degree is required. Interesting. Especially in, especially in companies that cannot, you know, really fight in a seller's market for talent where the company needs to get the best talent they can possibly get. So if you're not like a hyper-capitalized, like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, mm -hmm. or Google kind of company, yeah. uh, or a McKinsey or a Goldman, you you really need to attract the best talent out there. And it doesn't matter whether or not the talent has the degree. So I think you're just going to see more and more of that over the years. You're going to see alt alternate signaling mechanisms. I think you're going to see more like industry-oriented um, exams, like, you know, if you want to be an angel investor, you don't have to have a CFA or anything like that. You need to pass the Section 65 exam, right, yeah. that a FINRA-regulated org would have. Um, but you don't need a degree to go do that. You need a degree to be a CFA. Um, I think you're going to see more things like that. I thought the collapse of, of, of these institutions would have come during COVID. Like, one of the people that, that I'm somewhat friends with is Scott Galloway. And one of his takes, which is this is the one I tend to agree with, which is that he had a prediction that like the only schools that are going to come out of this are either high brand names, um, Ivy Leagues, 
or like low cost, low brand names, which is just like University of Alabama. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is happening in the VC world. I think Everett Randall wrote a little bit about this, which is sort of like the VC, the funds that are doing well are either high brand names or the ones who are just able to like distribute cash very rapidly like Tiger. And so you'll either see Founders Fund or Tiger. And so the people in the middle get squeezed out of it. So, and so I, I think the, the VC example is an interesting one because I, I'm, I'm taking this, this is not my original analogy, um, but I, I'm not necessarily going to give credit to whom I got it from, but I, it's not my original analogy. I'm going to say that. Sure. I think there's something to that, but I think it, I think it's not quite on point. And I think okay. it carries over to um, Scott Galloway's take as well, where I think he missed something important. What do you think he missed? I think that he's right that the universities that will come out of this in the longer term are either going to be like super high brand, like the, the Ivy League and the Ivy Plus and, and organizations like that. But I don't think it's necessarily going to be like really bad ones on the other end that are going to succeed. It's going to be hyper-focused ones. Okay. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see more and more universities that previously maybe were like small liberal arts colleges or small like land-grant state schools who won't be able to compete uh, on like a business administration degree or an econ degree or a psychology degree or any kind of like social liberal um, liberal arts degrees, right? Right. So they're going to be forced to pare down their uh, their staff. They're going to be forced to pare down what they offer. They're not. This isn't how they're going to react at first. How they're going to react at first is offer like online MBAs. But no one's going to go get an online MBA from like Bumble Nowhere State University, Correct. yeah, uh, because that's that's still going to be expensive and just not worth. So it. talk about talk about uh, for some people like I know the three reasons, the three four reasons why someone would go to college. Like what are what are basically the pulls for why someone would go to college? Yeah, I mean the the way you figure this out uh, is you you go you talk to an audience of college students and you ask them. Uh, it, let's imagine that you could. Uh, learn everything you're learning, meet the people you're meeting, um, do everything you're doing, like all the fun stuff you're doing, all that kind of stuff, make the connections, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you don't get that degree. How many of you would go? And in a room of a hundred, maybe three or four will raise their hand. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe, right? I used to do this. I, I would do this when I used to give talks. This is something my colleagues and I would do. And those three or four people would be, would be people who should go be professors, right? The main reason somebody goes is just for that credential to get a job. Yes. There are other goods that are kind of wrapped into it, like the social good, kind of the coming of age good, which I think is more the social thing if we want to talk about that separately, kind of the second point that you you kind of set aside. Yeah. Um, there's the – people say there's the networking aspect, but I think it's really debatable whether that, that's really there. Uh, the main reason is just to go get a job. So I think as more and more companies say, like, you look, we don't care if you have a degree to come get a job – just fewer people are going to choose to go in the first place. Like my general advice, especially if you're coming from like middle of nowhere is get into the highest ranked school you can get into. Yeah. Defer your admission, go take a gap year. If you don't know what you want to take gap year on, go for a year, then take a, a year off. The universities actually like when you do this because it reduces their uh, attrition rate. It, it increases their graduation rate. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, then you can say like, yeah, I got through the filtering mechanism at Stanford or, oh, I got through the filtering mechanism at Michigan or wherever, but I had better opportunities than going and getting that degree. And I think that that actually uh, signals really well on the individual. Uh, and I think it contributes more to this general uh, mission of uh, 
destroying the our, our elite lame institutions <laughs> let's let's talk about destroying colleges like the first time we talked <laughs> i was i was ra- i actually was ranting about OnlyFans, and you came and we were talk- we moved somehow to colleges i think and- it's because if, if you send your daughters to college they're going to end up making an only fans to pay for it which is statistically true <laughs> <laughs> oh i shouldn't be laughing that's that's really depressing no i mean listen OnlyFans is not a good thing it's not a good thing for the people who buy. It's not a good thing for the people who sell it. It's like porn is a bad thing. And if we, could, if you want to talk about this, we'll talk about this later. Um, but one of the things we had talked about is you mentioned to me your like game plan on how we absolutely like destroy these institutions. And you had said two things that I had never heard before. And one was allow students to declare bankruptcy in their student loans. And the second thing is, I, this might have been you. This might have been someone else. I think it was you who went, we should allow students to sue their colleges for essentially scamming them. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, on the student loan thing, this was a financial reform put in place by George W. Bush, probably uh, the the most overrated president of the last (laughs) 50 (laughs) years. Um, He put through this as part of a student loan um, finance uh, reform during his administration. Uh, student loan debt is the only kind of debt that cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. And the logic for this makes enough sense on it, on its face, right? It is federally subsidized debt, first of all. And secondly, when you typically when you graduate from college, you have a very thin credit file and the cost to you for declaring bankruptcy is essentially zero. Like if a 23-year-old could declare bankruptcy, it really won't destroy their life versus like if a 50-year-old declares bankruptcy, right? Mm -hmm. You don't own a house. You probably don't own a car. You have all these other things that like typically when you go through bankruptcy are considered collateral and can be refinanced. Uh, But if if you're 22, 23, you don't have this. So the logic makes enough sense, but the result ends up being that between the federal subsidies into the universities – uh, and this fact that the universities know that nobody is really going to push back on their pricing, they can essentially just charge whatever they want, right? right. Uh, so if you allowed students or recent grads to declare to declare bankruptcy on their student loans, or to if you included student loans in bankruptcy that somebody could declare as a recent grad or non grad, whatever. You would definitely have this effect of universities losing out on a lot of money that they expected to have coming in. You and, and the federal government as well. Like the federal government again subsidizes these loans, so it would be a problem for the federal government at the same time. But I think that problem would be a good one, right? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not really an accelerationist. I think that accelerationism ends up hurting a lot of people in its process. But I think uh, shaking down the universities would end up being really good for grads. I think it'd be really good for the country. At the end of the day, it'd be really good for the good universities, right? The universities with really strong brands are the universities that end up focusing on like my small liberal arts college is good at economics and my small liberal arts college is good at psychology. That's what I was trying to allude to earlier. I think that'd be really, really good for the universities at the end of the day. It would put a lot of them out of business, but there's no reason why we should have as many universities in this country as we do. Correct. If you look at the actual data on like what people learn when they're in university, even in STEM, it's pretty much negligible unless it's something they use day to day in their jobs. So what this would do is it would make the universities have to actually be accountable to the students or to their parents uh, when and to the federal government when they charge them tuition. So you'd have to actually be able to say, if I'm going to charge you 80K, you're going to be able to pay that back. And I'm going to make sure that you, you have some kind of way of paying that back. 
So you would see them actually investing in career uh, resources departments. You'd see them cutting these departments that they don't need anyway, that are just a function of this overproduction of elites. And you would actually see the ones that can't provide those results closing shop, which is good. That, that, that is the kind of creative destruction that is good for an economy. It's, it's not even necessarily creative. It just gets yeah. rid of the stuff that's just a negative on the yeah. economy, right? I think that's right, yeah. Uh, and then separately, yeah, if, if any other institution went around and told people like, uh, like think about like the claims that an organization like Amway makes for, for the people they talk to. They say like, hey, if you buy our products, you're gonna be rich, you're gonna be sexy, you're gonna be fit, you're gonna be all these wonderful things and your friends will love you, you'll be an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's like Grant Cardone, you can like 10X your, your, your life savings if you and YOLO it all to Dogecoin or something. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, exactly. Some dumb, some, if, it's like, if you buy my course, you'll 10X your network. No, that's not how it works. Right, and if the FTC weren't actually asleep at the wheel, they would, they would prosecute these people, right? And sometimes they actually do. But universities make even more fantastical claims. They cherry pick data, just like just like the people who sell these these like crazy, crazy like ten, fifteen thousand dollar courses. By the mm -hmm. way, they cherry pick data from their most successful students, and they say this is what our average student uh, or median starting income is. For example, universities do this because they offer the recent earnings uh, surveys. To, uh, on a totally voluntary basis to-, to And only the people who do well will submit it. Of course, yeah. Like if I if I spent a quarter million dollars to go to an elite university and I'm making $35,000 working the gender studies like offshoot of that university, then I'm not going to like respond to my $250,000 university that I'm making $35,000 working the gender studies department of like some third tier university. Yes. Like that's of course the selection effect that's going to happen, but people don't know this when they sign up, when they, when they sign on the dotted line. So a class action suit against universities would be at least interesting to see. Uh, I don't know like how much it would really do at the end of the day. I think the best thing you could do would be an enterprising politician to go out there and say, I want to reverse this uh, financial reform under George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And if you are a recent grad and you're drowning under debt, you should be allowed, if you're any kind of grad and you're drowning under debt, you should be allowed to declare bankruptcy. Yeah. The universities will freak out. The universities will lobby against this left and right. You'll, you'll, you'll see any kind of state representative who's from a big university town, like decry this as fiscally irresponsible or what have you. Yeah. But it, it's because the, the primary beneficiaries of this are really just the universities. It, they're massive. Student loans are massive bailouts. These totally inefficient, totally uncreative institutions that again, primarily with a few exceptions, and those exceptions are like maybe 50 max in a country of thousands of universities, like primarily exist just to uh, uh, employ like an overproduced elite. Right, like the, the way these colleges work is that, let's say we have an archeology span professor or some weird social science professor that nobody really takes. It's like the only way they have a job is if they convince their students, hey, you'll have a job when you graduate in this field. And even in STEM, we have two things. We have the promising of when you graduate, you will have a job. And at the same time, we're flooding the labor market with immigrants who will do it at a cheaper rate. So you have like this double punch kill for these kids graduating. Well, a, there's no jobs to begin with, right? And B, you're, there's a lot of competition now coming in overseas. And C, there's a lot of outsourcing now. And so like if you're a student and even in STEM, Right, like the, the amount of kids who are graduating does not meet the amount, like is greater 
than the amount of jobs that even exist. And that, that's especially true in academic jobs, which is really what the university, the university is an apprenticeship system for academics. Mm -hmm. So even in STEM jobs, I just came across an excellent article that talked about this. The article is from 2015, but the data is probably even just more terrifying now. Uh, even in STEM jobs, like the main job you get as like a graduate researcher or something, because most people who get, who get an academic STEM degree, they go on to do an advanced degree, right? The main job you would get would be working in a lab. And most of the people who end up getting those jobs working in labs tend to be immigrants because it's a great way. One, it's, it's good money, relatively speaking, for them, even though it wouldn't be good money for like an upper middle class American. And B, it's a great way for them to go then get a job in like Wall Street or in tech or back in their home country. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you absolutely have this problem. Again, everything at the end of the day comes back down to supply and demand. We've had, you know, we have uh, an oversupply of these credentialed people, the, an oversupply of these credentials in the first place relative to the demand. Uh, we have <laughs> an oversupply of labor in the workforce. We have a, a lot of this just comes back to like fundamental supply and de demand questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw some interesting tweet where if someone was complaining. It's like a kid goes to get a loan. He's like an 18 year old. like, sir, could I please get an $80,000? like, of course, of course you can. Of course we'll give you an eight. And he comes back. He's like, can I, can I buy a house? With, can I get a loan? He's like, what are you, are you kidding me? We're going to give and, you a loan for a house? And, and so it's not. It's not like loosening the guidelines for getting a loan. It's like we should make them hard. We should be more restrictive in who we give the money to. Absolutely. And, and going back to my my proposal on uh, restructuring uh, bankruptcy laws, that would absolutely do this. Because you go back pre-2008, it was a lot easier to get a mortgage. The reason why the banks are so hard on people trying to get mortgages is because they don't want another 2008. Mm -hmm. Part of it's regulation, Yeah. But a big chunk of it is just like, we don't want to destroy the financial system again. And like, maybe what we need to do is we need another like mini financial crisis. There's a question of like how many it would be given that student loan is trillions of dollars if we did something similar in the student loan space. Like the area where I start to get a little nervous about what I'm talking about is again, like the, the, the way that a lot of these... Um, financial instruments tend to be like securitized is really, really scary. Again, yeah. going back to 2008. So like I would have to like really dig into how student loan debt securitized if it is. Um, but, you know, again, you, you have to pick your poison, right? So like, we have a pretty good idea of how the path wrong ends and it doesn't end well. So like maybe what we do is we do something really painful in the short term in order to prevent something really, really painful in the long term. Yeah, and it's, it's something similar. I wanted to hear your take on BlackRock buying like thousands of homes at 20% markup price and like the effect it has for like the unit of the family where like the American dream was the one, the one part of the American dream was you'd be able to buy a house. You'd have a white picket fence, you'd be able to have a house, you'd have a few kids, like you, you would have a stable job, you could at least buy a house. And now we're creating a permanent class of renters, of people who, and so here's what this affects. It's like A, You'll never own a house. And so, okay, well, what is the rent? It's like, no, 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 no. Like, you don't really understand what happens when you don't own your house. You don't have a stake in your society. And an interesting thing is a friend of mine, Rob Henderson, writes about how in the 90s there was such a crime wave. And, and part of there was crime bubbling up in the Asian community. And so then what happened? They self-policed inside the community. said, if you're a criminal, we're going to make, like, we don't want you here. We're going to shun your parents. Like, 
there was a correction inside. And the only way that happens is people have, have ownership and a stake in their communities. And so like, if you're a young person, like you have like every social force seemingly against you, right? You'll be burdened with thousands of dollars in debt. You won't have a job. You won't be able to buy a house. It'll be very hard for you to find a spouse. It'll be very hard for you to have children. It'll be very hard for you even then to, to like pay back those loans. And your kids will also be going to a school that like they're not actually taught well. They're taught to hate the country. And so this is sort of like my black pilling nihilism of where I am today. But we're seeing basically like when I saw BlackRock buying up houses at 20, I want to hear your what like what is your thought on the fact that we're seeing all these forces, specifically like BlackRock buying 20% above market price for houses? Like where does this end up? Before I offer before I jump into that, I, I do want to offer a white pill to your black pill. Well that's right? that's that's very again, kind of you. Again, right? I, I, I think I am uh, I might be cynical or pessimistic in my diagnosis, but I'm actually fairly optimistic in my prognosis. I'm not. I'm not. Well, Again, can lame can the people as lame as our elites really continue to win, right? That like Lori Lightfoot is the best they can send, right? Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the best they can send. Like I, I, I just I, I just believe that more and more people are going to get short term black pilled, and it's going to result in a longer term white pill. But that's that's my my little bit of optimism. I can see that. There. No, I can that, see that. Yeah, that's my little bit of optimism. I mean, I I do see more and more smart, sharp young people who totally eschew, you know, going into this weird mimetic meat grinder that is the universities to go become management consultants or to go become, you know, whatever boring big tech job is out there, and they'll go actually work on real hard technology. So I I, I am actually long term. The way optimistic. the way you win and is is by thinking you're going to lose. I was reading some book about, you know, generals on the battlefield and like the way you'd be like, if you think you're going to lose like that fire under you really gets you going, right? Like in, in like the Yom Kippur war in Israel, like they thought they were going to lose, like they were ready to launch the nukes that they don't have. Um, like they really did everything in their powers. Like, listen, this is like the last stand yep. we have to win. And so it is those positions. You, you have to burn the boats, right? Yeah. Or, or another, another saying I like is that chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets, right? Yeah, this is true. Um, so I, I, I'm really not a pessimist. <laughs> I know a lot of what I'm saying sounds pessimistic, but I actually think it's it's like a it's like a natural forest fire. After a natural forest fire, you actually have like a really lush and healthy forest, but you just can't put off letting the forest fire happen because otherwise, then you get like the stuff we have in California, right? Right. Like that, that was actually one of the like weirdly very salient points that Donald Trump made in the debates last year was his point on California's forest uh, management. <laughs> like, oh, he's actually like, he, he's clearly actually been briefed on this by somebody who knows what they're talking about <laughs> and he picked it up. Um, so I, I, on the BlackRock issue, I'll admit, like I haven't dug really into it and it, it does smack me a little bit of the sensationalism that we tend to read from like the blue checks. Okay. Um, no offense, uh, but to the, to like journal blue checks. Um, so I, I don't want to dig into that too no, much. No, I mean, listen, uh, my, my political per professional, and I'll say this, like, I think bl every blue check should be imprisoned. <laughs> I think everyone who tweets about Bitcoin should be imprisoned. Like, I'll, I'll be like, my first thing when I met a few of these people was like, I think the world would be a better, better place if you were behind a jail cell and <laughs> off my Twitter feed about Bitcoin. I, I don't know about necessarily in a jail cell, but maybe getting no geed. Um, that's fair. Let's talk about bullying. Has, bullying as a child. <laughs> no, no, let's 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 head back to the black yeah, rock yeah. and the home of the home. Continue, continue. 
I mean, again, like it, it, once you, you see a little bit behind the curtain on like how different forms of private equity work, a lot of these things tend to make a little bit more sense than what you tend to read in the media. But again, I, I just saw the headlines on the BlackRock. I got issue, you. So I can't speak to that one in particular. Now, that being said, again, I, I would point to like there are probably like actually salient uh, solutions to these problems. And the big one is you want to balance this with like the, the idea of like turning everyone into a bug person. But the, the, the big one is you actually make it easier for people to build housing, right? Right. Uh, so there's probably something like you do state level constitutional amendments that strip power from like local, some local planning boards, right? Depending on, um, it might be some weird uh, algorithm like uh, median household income and then the price of the home or something like that, right? That makes it way easier for a developer to come in and say, hey, I actually want to build this like 40 unit building in San Francisco. And because it casts a shadow on a park for three minutes a day, you can't stop me for stupid, frivolous reasons like that. And that, that, that's a real example. Um, wow. So it's really what, what it really comes back to. And again, I don't like the like throwing rocks kind of thing is it's it comes back to the baby boomers expropriating more wealth than previous generations would have in their place. It, it comes back to this general sense of like, we don't necessarily have an obligation to leave the world better off than we found it. And I think that's fundamentally the, the concern that's going around in the country right now is that we, for the first time, are looking at the possibility that the generation like coming of age right now is actually finding the world worse off yes, yes. overall than they found it. Now, of course, there's like truncated, there's, there's certain truncated things like where I'm grateful that we don't have something like World War II and all the atrocities that went along with that going on. I'm grateful that we don't live through like the constant existential like angst of the Cold War and of being vaporized. I do think that those things are good. I also don't think that those things not being around are really is really attributable to to anything the boomers did in particular. But previously what would have happened when the when somebody came of age as the boomers are now is they would have uh, either moved into they would have like gone south, right? Moved to like Miami. <laughs> yeah, moved to Boca uh, Raton, which is yeah. like the nesting, yeah. Right, they would have moved to Boca. Uh, or they would have like either moved in with family, especially if it was an immigrant family, uh, or they would have gone to a home. And I, I don't like homes. I think homes are really bad. And I think what the boomers did to their parents by putting them into homes kind of created the situation that we're in right yeah. now. Um, but what you're seeing instead is that they like sell their five bedroom house and they now buy a three bedroom house. All right. They buy what would have been the starter home. Like I right? saw some, I forgot I the WAPO Wall Street Journal. There was an article about how like, your grandma doesn't have any, she shouldn't right. raise your children. Why would right. she, you're because taking she away be, she her. Could, she could be making money. She could be she making could, money. Yeah. She could be, she, she could be worshiping at the throne of mammon. Um, I, yeah. I, I think fundamentally what we have is we have a, a, a society that is either implicitly or explicitly, explicitly atheistic in the sense that they don't believe that there is like some sort of greater power than them, whether that is like a, 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 uh, sort of like tribal, like I'm going to leave something better for my children. I mm -hmm. owe it to my children to do X, Y, and Z. Or if it is actually the spiritual thing, like you will have to stand before the throne of God and answer for everything that you did. Mm -hmm. I, I don't personally, as far as like doing this kind of conversation, like it could be one or the other. And I think that we're generally living in a society that has that kind of sense. Like you might have people who they, they believe in a greater power, but it's just like, 
happy-go-lucky greater power that I want everyone to like, we just need to love each other kind yeah. of thing, even though that's totally ahistorical. God loves you no matter what you do. Yeah, to to totally ahistorical from any religion that has existed throughout history besides this weird like ersatz hippie religion that the boomers invented, right? Yeah. So I think fundamentally that's what it is, is you have like a, a friend of mine is trying to buy a house right now. Great example. It's hell. It's, it's like Sam, little, little tangent. San Francisco has uh, criminalized building housing and legalized being a criminal. Yeah. And so, like, it is, it is impossible. Well, that my to friend buy. is trying to, trying to buy a house in the Midwest, <laughs> which is somewhere where you think it'd be much easier to buy a house. It's still very, very hard. Uh, and and I, you know, he's going through the whole process, the whole rigmarole, the the post two thousand eight kind of stuff. He's buying very much like what would be a starter home. Like, if one had a family, they would move the family into this house. They would have, you know, two bedrooms in an office, or like a nursery and two bedrooms, something like yeah. that, right? And, uh, you know, he's, the, the offer could, could fall through, could not fall through. We'll see. But the buyers have a ton of people lined up with cash offers. Oh, right? it's unbelievable. Well, so I asked, like, what are the cash offers? Like, who, who's making these cash offers? I would have guessed, like, it's, you know, bug people from, like, the Bay Area. See, that's like, my assumption, too. That, that would have been my guess, right? Or maybe, like, BlackRock. But, again, like, the whole way that, like, institutional – the whole way that institutional real estate really makes sense is only really if it's leveraged. So like, mm -hmm. I didn't think that it would, it would be like these PE firms or anything that doesn't really make sense for like single okay. family homes. And he said, it's, it's, it's retirees. It's retirees who sold their homes. They saw the, they saw like the crazy machinations of the real estate market this last year. Mm -hmm. They decided like, well, Diane, we can sell our home and we can make, 30x on what we bought it for back in like 1994 mm -hmm. and they sold it and maybe they're like living in an apartment building right now or something like that and they want to downsize but again downsizing for them means they they, they it taking, doesn't mean they're it taking means the they're taking starter homes they're taking yes. the starter homes so that's what's going on it's a demographic issue we have way too many old people trying to move into homes that previously would have gone to young people we don't have enough homes for the young people that's brilliant. So, that's, that's a brilliant diagnosis. It's something I had not even thought of before that these old people are taking, like they're raising the prices and taking the homes from what be, would be young people. Yeah. And even, even it's even true in apartments. Like I remember reading about this years ago that um, like class B and like lower class A, for those who don't know that real estate uh, tends to be divided into like class A, B and C more or less, uh, which is gen tends to be a function of like how nice it is and the, and the rent. Right. Okay. So like class B tends to be like your, your pretty like middle market kind of stuff. Your class A stuff is like your luxury apartment buildings. A lot of these like lower, like slightly older class A buildings or these like class B plus buildings, a lot of their tenants are retirees. Uh, so these are people who, again, previously would have like either like sold their house to their kids or sold their house and like helped their kids or given their, their kids house, the house, yeah. given their kids the house and they would have lived in the house. Or they would have lived like on the property, which for the most of humanity, like that is how people live. Like the yeah, whole and, thing of like, and, it's mom, and, dad and kids. Like, no, it was like the great, it, it was multi-generational. It, really, it worked really well. But if you are the real estate industrial complex that had a ton of power in this country, like I will push back on the American dream. I think the American dream is a complete and total farce that has been invented by the real estate industry. Okay. And like the, I, the white picket fans, like the white picket yeah. fans. Like, I think there might be something to what you're saying about, like, if you own something, you're more invested in it. But when we, as soon as you start treating, like, for example, like the whole wedding industry is fake. Like, the whole, like, you need a, like a diamond ring just yeah. came recently. This yeah. wasn't a yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's all fake. And I think that as soon as you start securitizing, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, um, 
you know, credit default swaps or anything like that. But in the sense of like, oh, real estate's an investment. As soon as you start telling people that real estate is an investment, they are not actually viewing that real estate in this like broad metaphysical eschatological sense of investment. They're viewing it as I'm going to buy this and in five years, I'm going to sell it. Right. If you're going to sell it in five years, yeah, you're not like, I'm going to push back against the idea. Like you're not invested in that local community's future. Unless you're actually planning on being there like intergenerationally. Correct. So again, a lot of this comes back to this idea that everyone needs to own this kind of home and that there's something shameful in like multi-generational households. Mm -hmm. Um, This, this is something again, largely invented by the real estate industry when it was trying to sell more and more mortgages. Um, I, I think like divorce is good for them too, because then you get two houses, you you might get two houses, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of this comes back to like, who are the, there's this idea in like political economy called public choice theory. And if there's something that I think that people like on the, the right, if you want to call, I'd never heard of this. Certain people. Of this no, like, I have never right. heard of public choice. Well, if there's something that people on the right could take from libertarians, that is mm-hmm. actually like really valuable. It's public choice theory. And it's, it's, there's a whole field of political economy around it, but there's this one concept from it, from it's super salient and really, really useful to think about when you're trying to diagnose these problems, which is, is there a constant, is there a, a party that gets a concentrated benefit from some sort of dispersed cost? Mm-hmm. And the shortage of real estate, very great example of a concentrated benefit into the real estate industry and a dispersed cost over the entire economy. Uh, farm subsidies are like the classic kind of boring example that like the, the George Mason University people might give, right? Like mm-hmm. you and I might pay a few cents more in taxes per year, but like some big ag industry makes billions of dollars. So they'll send tons of lobbyists to DC to make sure that that never goes away, right? Same with, uh, same with why I'm not optimistic about the bankruptcy law stuff with the universities, because it's unless the cost gets really, really big and like, and like future threatening. As soon as the cost of university becomes an existential threat, which I think that's on the horizon, mm-hmm. you might actually see us being will, be willing to pull that bandaid off. But until then, the universities, they, they have lobbying arms. Of course they do. They will absolutely lobby against anything like that. Just like they love, they, they lobbied against the idea that, they have to disclose where their foreign financing comes from. Right. Like the universities are effectively hedge funds. Harvard's Harvard's a forty-eight billion dollar uh, endowment a hedge with fund. like an educational attachment well, with real estate attached, right? So again, concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. I think this is something that people could benefit from thinking about more when you're trying to diagnose where these problems are coming from, and you start to see certain culprits. Uh, you start to see these culprits and then you like dig into the lobbying numbers and it's like, Oh wow. That, that was actually the case. Yeah. And so like I, I was under the assumption I had thought that it was like the people who were working from home who like essentially were getting to work from home is in some capacity, like somewhat of a raise too, if you move to somewhere cheaper, oh, absolutely. I had thought all these houses in like Denver, Colorado that were getting bought up were being bought up from work from home people who were able to leave. But like, I had never like thought of that. It's like, maybe it's old people who are like selling their houses at a real high and then moving out. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think in certain markets, probably Austin and Denver being two good examples of those markets, you are probably really competing with people like from the Bay area who cashed in on their stock options. Or have just been like saving up cash because they make like 300k a year sitting on the roof of Google. Uh, I, I'm sure those people are part of the market, but I, I think a really invisible part of the market is 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 retirees. Because um, where else would somebody have the cash to make cash yeah. offers like that? Two of the aspects of like eternal adolescence that really caught my eye 
was the fact of like not really settling down and finding a spouse. The other thing is, I think you find this funny. It's like people don't want responsibility. Like these, these, uh, like these 20 something year olds don't want responsibility. So look at a dog. And now the dog is too much responsibility. They'll get a plant now. And so like sure. plant moms is like an actual thing. Like it has become an actual thing where like people will have just plants and they'll name them. And like I talk, I'm talking like a boomer, but like that is the replacement to like, it is so much responsibility to have a dog and to take him outside, they'll get a plant. And so the two components to eternal adolescence is people not settling down and finding a spouse. And so one, that's one of the things that interests me the most. And it's like, what are the societal ills? What are the things that are happening right now that if you can't find a spouse, and this is where OnlyFans somewhat ties into, mm-hmm. whereas we're seeing a massive jump in OnlyFans um, subscription and people, like it's becoming normalized. Um, like porn is no longer this much of a taboo subject that it used to be five, six, oh, seven years ago. You, you have the, the resident Catholic uh, writer for like the New York Times or some, you know, horrible uh, coastal publication now writing about in, in favor of porn literacy. That, I mean, listen, you guys need to get your religion in check. Uh, you guys- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but all love to my Catholic, to my tradcast out there. Um, essentially, what I think we're seeing is more people are getting on OnlyFans, but I think people have a, 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 a confused as to why people are getting on there. Um, most people don't know that it's not really the poorness why people are going and paying. And only, like it takes something has to happen for you to spend money on something that is free, uh-huh. right? Like why would you, doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. And so what's going on there is people are paying for that emotional component, for that emotional attachment. And so like 68%, 67% of revenue that comes through these people will, will come in through messaging. Yep. And so guys are really paying for this emotional component that they can't find elsewhere. And so what's really dangerous about this is what happens when you're paying that 15, 20, whatever number it is, you then kind of like treat that as a cost. Okay, it's a sunk cost. Why would I now go on a date if I have something that is already locked in that is like this fake like parasocial relationship? And so you never improve, you never get better. At the same time, like who does this hurt? It hurts women who want spouses. Mm -hmm. And so everyone loses. And this is the one aspect of like continuing adolescence. And the second thing is, is people aren't having having kids. They're not, they're not getting married. They're not having kids. And it's just like, the first component is, is as a nation, you want people having kids. Like that is the continuation of how things like you need new young people. And like the market libertarians is you in like the capitalism sense, like you need people to enter the the job force, Mm -hmm. pay taxes because old people are retiring, they're cashing out, social security, whatever it may be. Like you need those people entering. And so what really is, is frightening is young men not having a sense of direction, not having a sense of how they can even win and get a family and get a good paying job. So they just exit the system. And it's just like, same thing, similar with, um, I, know your, I know your thoughts on homeschooling, but homeschooling as like a reaction to how bad like critical race theory is in schools, I think is stupid in the sense where you're exiting the system, but once your kids leave the household, they are still entering that corrupt system. Or like all you are doing is taking their time until they're 18. And so now they're even far, like far less behind on would be simply on the critical race theories and, and like how to navigate the modern world. So like the social ills are still happening. You're not stopping them. And homeschooling, all it really does is it, it exits you, but you can't exit from society for your entire life. You have to, you're going to have to reenter it. And so the, the call from the right, simply on the fact of, I think there are some good components to homeschooling, but 
the fact of just conservative saying, well, just homeschool your kids. It's like, no, 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 no. Your kids are going to leave the house. They're going to enter the workforce. It's the same thing with conservatives. The dumbest thing I ever heard from the right about colleges was like, oh, once those kids enter the real world, they'll wake up. No, they no. become managers. They'll wake <laughs> That's up. What like, no, they're hiring positions. <laughs> right. They're the people right. in charge. Right. And, and the people the people with like the underwater basket weaving degrees end up becoming HR people in particular. Like that's that's the really like the worst components of what you see at the university. Those people become compliance. Those people become HR. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think you're right. The there is definitely a culture building component to it. Unfortunately culture takes a very, very long time. So you, you also need to like simultaneously make very clear um, truncated changes. Like there's there's this kind of debate going on back and forth. And I, I don't know if I'd call it a debate. I think it's been like two or three pieces between a writer of the American conservative and the writer of Gray Mirror, Curtis Yarvin, right? Mm-hmm. On like whether or not- Is it Micah? Is it yeah, Micah? It, okay, yeah, I'm friends Micah. with Micah, I saw yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so Micah, who uh, I, I encourage any, anyone to read. Uh, he's, he's an excellent writer and- yeah. I, I, when I when I feel more romantic, I uh, feel aligned with like what Micah's talking about. It's like you know, like go like the restoration of the bison in America yeah, yeah, will like, usher in a great of you, know, which I love. I've worked out with Micah; he's a great guy. I like him. Right, right, right. Or like, yeah, all you do is you lift weights and you save society, and that is everything he's saying is true on the individual level. And I think there's yes. absolutely something true, something true to that. But I think what Yarvin's saying on the other side is like, okay, you want to like you know, change all these things by like uh, reelecting your people on your school board, launch a super PAC to stop the crazy people from taking over the school boards. But what's just going to happen is that some bureaucrat in the federal government is going to like bring down the the hammer yes. on the, on the school board as soon as the school board tries to like revolt. So you do end up having to like have to do something on the institutional level, which is why, like, I think on the individual level, going back to the university's question, it's like, yeah, you can opt out of the system and you can be really successful opting out of the system. That's, that's the message I want to tell someone who's interested in that. And like our entire fund is built around doing that for like the kinds of people who should go build like amazing companies. Right. Uh, but I do think you do need to do something on the like formal institutional level, yes, yes. which is like break them apart with using the bankruptcy. Law, right. Which is why right? you're the only person who was really talking about this in essence. Like you have to go for the, for the above power structure. Like the things we fight about, let's say like even CRT in schools, like the federal government is what really you should be going for. And same thing in colleges. Like you can really go and fight against t- and professors and say they should be fired. Great. But like, what is the, what is the mechanism? What is the, what is, in- what is like aligning the incentive model for these schools. Yeah. And, and again, I think it's different strokes for different folks, right? Like there's, there's this great line. I think it's in, I think it's in the book of Ephesians where it's like, you know, he, he gave some as teachers and he gave some as preachers. He gave some as X, Y, Z, right? Like different people have different uh, vocations in what, in this, like what I think is actually a spiritual battle um, at the end of the day. And if you are at all inclined towards having those national policy conversations and you're like kind of bored by the local school board stuff, you should probably be going and having those national policy conversations and not giving, not turning that over to like the, the kid that you knew from college who was insufferable and always, always dreamed about working at the state. It's always debate kids and drama kids, like theater kids. Like yeah. if I had to put like three, pe- three groups I mean, because of people, it, it's people that who... should be in prison, it would be theater kids, Bitcoin, and blue chat. <laughs> you disavow. You disavow. Take a few minutes to disavow what I said. I'm not sure about putting them in prison. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. 
but I, I do think that that there, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's a narcissism, right? Like it's like everyone look at me, everyone needs to be yeah. looking at me and what I'm I'm doing. But again, I I think like I think the 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 Yarvin Meadowcroft kind of debate is funny personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like it's like both of them writing fifteen thousand word articles where you could just can we just do five tweets yeah, please yeah like each of them is getting on their drug of choice like for for Yarvin it's like some some sort of like amphetamine or something and for Mike it's like lifting yeah I it's was like in say, between bench pressing just like I was taking say a it's probably some like craft beer or some <laughs> some some, like, I, some, some IPA wine. some yeah. IPA from like bison grass fed IPA right right and they sit down <laughs> and they write their like soliloquy against the other person. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's different strokes for different folks. And I think that, unfortunately, the way that what I would call the grifter industrial complex uh, makes these conversations have to go is like, there is one way that is the right way forward. Mm-hmm. By the way, donate to my nonprofit, donate to my think tank, donate right. to my organization. Right. I, I guess the mic's over here. <laughs> donate to my organization that does these things and it is, will be and able to change the world these that things. way. Only we do these things. Yeah, we really only we do these things. So like, at the end of the day, like if I had to focus on my own little grifter industrial complex fiefdom, it would be like make a bunch of people who were like actually the donors on the other side because those are the people who have the power at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, I, I went to I went to um, one of the American Minds. They were hosting an event in D.C. Like a lot of my friends were there. It's a great time. Mm-hmm. One of the speakers essentially was saying, it's like, yeah, well, BlackRock and all these funds have so much more money than we ever do but what we need to do is bundle up some of our money and and do and like argue with uh, like as a stakeholder for what we want to get done i was like what are you talking about like the only mechanism like we can't we shouldn't use the government the government is not the, like we're conservatives we're small government i put out a tweet that got a lot of hate i was like i do not care about small government i do not care right, right. And, you're like, a socialist right yeah, as I'm now a socialist because there's this <laughs> quote from actually a, like a socialist professor. He's like, when the government does stuff, that's socialism. The more stuff it does, the more socialism it is. And if it does a whole lot of stuff, that's communism. And so these people, it's either you're, you're a communist or you, you're an anarchist. Like either you're a communist or like their thing is we, sh- we should have small government. It's like, no, I think sometimes the government does stuff that is good. I think you need like a strong military. And I think that like, I would like a government that can like, when there's a pandemic, handle it properly. And so it's, you can, like my theory is like, I don't think you can really decrease the level of power in government. I think what you can try to do is change the tide of who's in power. And it's the same thing with elites. Like this right, the right has this weird hatred of our elites, which I understand the hatred, but you shouldn't hate on elites as a notion. Like you want elites, you want yeah, people who are any, qualified. Ideally you have a meritocracy. Like that's that's kind of like the ideal form of elite where like these people are elites because they're like actually good at what they do and yeah, it provides yeah. value to people. Yeah. So like, yeah, you, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of the elites. Like, um, you want people you want lawyers you want people who like when you have a new administration who can like get stuff done and you want these people compensated well this is this is one of my like contrarian beliefs here is like again this is a a strong belief loosely held so i could be persuaded on this but like i think we should absolutely compensate people in congress a lot oh yes 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 100 i think they should be compensated insanely well I think we could even like give them a beautiful estate in their home state when they retire. They're just not allowed to go and become a lobbyist. Oh like, yeah, maybe maybe that's the rule. 
Well, because essentially what happens is you pay these people, same thing, I'll, I'll do a little tangent, but you, I think you'll understand it at the end. What is the difference between a tech journalist and someone who, who's working in Silicon Valley? Essentially, they went to the same school. They're the same, like they're equally as smart. But what happens is someone who becomes a tech journalist is doing it for status. Mm -hmm. And so they'll look next door and they'll say the person, they're making 10x than they are. And so I think that fosters some resentment. And so I've been coming up and theorizing, like, how can the right make institutions that will get people to jump from Facebook into, let's say, a startup or, or whatever it may be? And so and you have to make sure that you have at least like the jump has to be at least equal, like that you cannot be losing from jumping over shit. Right. And there's and, multiple there's multiple verticals that it needs to be equal on, not just not just compensation. So, yeah, so it needs to status. be exactly. So it needs right. to be status, finances. And also the other thing is if you want to build an organization does well, you have to basically make it so that you, the place you work at is a status symbol inside the like intragroup that is like with women. So like women will like look at, like if you want qualified, competent men, you have to basically create an institution that like people want to be a part of and that like is respected enough that it becomes a status symbol. Yeah, and in the startup world, you know, I have this conversation with our companies all the time, especially when they're like super early on, like really pre-seed or angel is you have this choice of hiring a missionary or a mercenary. Mm -hmm. And you typically really can't afford the mercenary. If you can, it's like a freelancer, and that's not really somebody that, that's that good. Okay. So you really want to hire these mercenaries because it's really, A, who you can only afford. And But to that person, in that person's world, the status of being like that founding engineer at that company doing something that's really, really interesting to them, it is this much higher. So that is the other component. You have to add a level of excitement and interest. Sorry. Yeah. Like that, no, no, no. That's really it. And so like, for example, I think two people do this well are Founders Fund and Anduril. And they're both in the same world. But what they've basically done is Anduril has created a new sense of like patriotism. And like the biggest issue in tech right now, one of the issues, sorry, is like all the people really smart get sent to create better ad rev services for yeah. Facebook, better targeting. Yeah. Yeah, so no, no, we want these people creating like incredibly interesting and cool technology. And so how do we make it so that we shift the model where people want to join these companies and it's cool and exciting. And so I don't think Anduril can pay as much as, as like Facebook can at the moment or pay as much as like Raytheon. But what they can do is provide like really cool status and like really cool opportunities and like create a brand name. And so listen, it's tough to do that where A, you need a financier yep. and B, you need something that people are drawn and inspired to do. Yeah, no, you you absolutely, you need some sort of mission at the end of the day. And I think something that really works in Daryl's um, angle, besides the fact that I, I think Palmer is like a really good, yeah, uh, just a, a really good kind of like leader for something like that, just his whole story and everything he's able to do. Uh, is there's an abs there's a massive void in like Patriot tech, right? Yes. If you want to call it that, or even just generally defense tech. Um, and that that's when there's a huge void, like something like that, you can step in there and you can take the air out of the room pretty quickly, but you absolutely need to like, look, when you hire somebody, you're not just hiring that person. You are hiring that person's spouse, that person's parents, that's per that person's peers. So you need to convince not only that person that they that this is the right job for them, but you need mm -hmm. to make it that they can go home and get their spouse excited about them leaving Facebook. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you need to like make sure that you're attracting people who like actually know how government works to government jobs. Like that yeah. that would be the gigantic complaint about Trump to me is that 
even if you look at his political appointees, I think something like 66% of them ended up being Democrats. Spot right? on. Yes. Because yes. there just, there just were no Republicans who knew, knew how government There worked. were no competent Republican elites who agreed with Trump. Right. And this is also why I, I, I tend to push back on the idea that we need to take these people from the business world and have them run for office. Because generally speaking, it's, it's kind of like the, the theater kid thing you mentioned. Generally speaking, if you are really good at your job in business, and assuming you can't do your job as well or at all once you go and like become like a U.S. representative or congressman or senator or whatever, uh, you are running for office either because you're actually not very good at your job uh, or you're craving for power and status. Yeah. And those people alone and of themselves are not the people you want to attract to those kinds of positions. No. Because those people end up, they end up being chameleons, right? They'll just change whatever they believe in order to have that kind of power and status. So I think a lot of it comes back to like attract, find wherever our competent elite are. I don't know, like, I really don't think there are that, relatively speaking, that many of them in the, in the, in the United States anymore, because for exactly the reason that you mentioned, like the people who have the raw abilities or like the drive or whatever it is to become like your meritocratic, like really mm -hmm. good elite, they go to these universities they get their dreams beaten out of them to become hyper competitive with each other for the same boring jobs. At certain universities, it's going to go be working for McKinsey or Goldman. Mm -hmm. At other universities, it's going to be working for Facebook or Amazon or Apple, Netflix or Google. Yeah. And at the end of the day, those people do that for 10 years. And like, what skills do they really have left? Right. Yeah. They can like maybe optimize uh, a retargeting pixel or they know how to make PowerPoint slides, but like, whoever you're like normally like high intelligence, high industriousness, kind of like competent elites are wherever they would normally be in a normal society. They're kind of in like the aristocracy maybe, but we don't really have that. So there we have this like hyper decadent, like mutant form of an aristocracy. that's yeah. just like really lame. Again, it just goes back to being so lame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I, I wouldn't say the elites are necessarily evil. I certainly don't think the concept is evil, anything like that. They're just so lame. Yeah, I mean, I think they've abdicated all responsibility to do good. Um, and I was reading one of the Substacks, and it was fascinating to me about the difference between San Francisco and New York City elites. And that in San Francisco, they focus more about global problems. And in New York, they're like, well, we care more about smaller issues, what's happening at home. And with their like desire for power, sometimes they'll do good because of that. And so that's why New York City looks better than San Francisco. Like yeah. You can, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, this was a riff of mine on uh, Paul Graham's essay, uh, Cities and Ambition, which is mm -hmm. a, an excellent essay I would recommend. Uh, but essentially every city that you're in, especially great cities, like kind of gives you an imperative like you should do X, you should do Y, you should do Z, you should be more powerful, whatever. And New York says you should be richer. And as a function of like becoming richer, there are like these kinds of expectations and obligations in New York that you will like you know, be on the New York City uh, Central right. Park board or something like that. And in San Francisco's, it's you should be more powerful. The Bay Area is, is absolutely more about power than it is just about pure wealth. Because if it were about pure wealth, the people who are in the Bay Area, well, a lot of them end up becoming fantastically wealthy. Most of them would probably go work and be an investment banker, right? Um, the Bay Area, uh, the, the LA area is like, you should be more famous. Yeah. ECs is also, you should be more powerful, but DC's idea of power and San Francisco's idea of power are two different things. And I think what we've been seeing over the last couple of years is the conflict of those two things coming together. Yeah. You wrote that, which is like, 
I thought was, was very spot on is that in DC, you want to have the appearance of having more power. And so that's what people really care about. And so to go back about one of the biggest problems the Trump admin has is that I think they just didn't have the amount of people to even fill these positions. And so you then, okay, you don't have, so you fill this in with people who hate your mission, make it your life. And the other thing that I think was one of the biggest issues was it's somewhat similar to that like he surrounded himself with people who didn't believe in the mission. And some points you could say, well, I don't know if he really believed in it, which is fine. It's fair criticism, but like, what, what can you control for? And you can control at least for the amount of people you're surrounding yourself with. And so it just, it just became like, at some point, these people are so ingrained and they're so close to you, you can't really get them out. Um, but what I think we're seeing right now, because I really wanted to, wanted to hear your take, like you really spent a lot of time with like young college grads or kids in college, right? And so I don't know how much, how much of this energy of just drop out is there actually in the sense where, and I know you, you mentioned this, like the White House, for example, and this was, this was some friends who were telling me, like you had to have a college degree for the most part to get an offer. Um, and so even this administration that was saying, you don't need a college degree, it's a waste of time. Even they um, were making that a requirement. How much of this pullback from people who necessarily aren't associated with the Peter Thiel world, which huge fan of, um, but people who are like normal corporations, how much are they actually um, making college degrees a requirement? Every company, the biggest pain point it has is finding good talent. Okay. I don't care what stage the company is. I don't care if it's an angel stage company with a hundred K in it. I don't care if it's a publicly traded company worth billions of dollars. It's biggest problem if not its biggest problem, it's usually in the top three, is finding good talent. So if you are good talent, you just need to make sure that you are found, right? Mm -hmm. The degree provides what you might call a minimal viable signal to a lot of companies. Uh, but often it's not enough, right? Especially in a market, especially in a loose labor market. Like right now we're in this weirdly tight labor market where, uh, where talent has all the leverage, right? Uh, but if you're in a loose labor market where it's hyper competitive to get a job, they're going to discriminate on like even the kind of the spacing of the font you use on your resume. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So in that case, like, can you still get the job without a degree? Yes, but you need a signal that's better and you need a signal that's very quick and obviously better. Right. Mm -hmm. So that would be like going and getting a job at either at a reputable brand or doing something that you can convey in one sentence that is clearly very hard and only somebody who is competent can accomplish. Right. So that might be that might be the entrepreneurial route. Generally speaking, I would not encourage people to go the entrepreneurial route in order to pad their resume. It's a really bad reason to go the entrepreneurial route. But I just say that as an, assur an assurance if somebody's like, I want to pursue my company, I have some traction, I may be able to raise some funding, but I'm not sure if I need to finish my degree. Should I go finish my degree first? My answer would be no, the degree will always be there. Yeah. Uh, and if you actually pursue the company and get any kind of success with it, which would really just be like paying customers and raising around in my, in my mind for something that early on, because that's really freaking hard to do. That can be a fairly strong signal to most hiring managers. The alternate route, uh, which is one I also recommend that I talk about in one of my books. And I, I also have a, a course on it that I work with people on is you, sh you can like get a direct line to the hiring manager. 
Yes. Which, if you can do that, you can usually sidestep everything. Uh, you might. There are two. There are two rules for people, and I'll let you. Sorry. There are two rules. If you are close to the people who are making decisions, and if you're not, and yep. those are really like, if you can make it so that you have friends of friends of friends who can put you in, that's what matters. Yeah, and and that's that's fundamentally like the cool thing about today is like if you can write really good emails, you can do this. It takes a it takes a while, but it takes less than five years on average to graduate. Um, and I think you can. I think a lot of people who are again competent and intelligent should do it. There was a pie chart, not a pie chart. <laughs> a um, there was a chart going around. Uh, it was a bell curve mm -hmm. of like. It was an IQ bell curve, I think, is what they were trying to get at. It was either IQ or they were just trying to say general confidence sure. um, of like, oh, here's here's who college is good for, right? And it was like the third quartile, meaning like 50 to 75%. I don't think that that's right. I think I would actually shift it more that it's good for like the second and maybe the beginning of the third quartile. Okay. If you are somebody who is like less than average, it will probably signal that you are more competent than you really are. If you're somebody who's actually really competent and like say like midwit level competent, like it might be good for you, especially if you're in a, a difficult to get into institution. Mm -hmm. But if you're anything above that, it's probably going to undersell you, right? Okay. And you need That's to do something above the the credential in order to get that kind of work around. Um, but what I've just generally found is this was a controversial topic like five years ago, and it's just not anymore. Uh, it, it's only controversial with like the hyper credentialist bug people yeah yeah um, outside my favorite, of them it's not controversial at all anymore. my favorite thing is 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 people will be like thinking phd is a status symbol like for me if i see and you have a phd i go why i go i like look at you and i go why why anybody who calls themselves doctor and is not a medical yes. doctor with with a few a few like medical adjacent exceptions i'll, I'll put that in there um like Maybe dentists, you know, maybe maybe. A few, maybe a few other like again adjacent things. But if you have like a, a PhD in sociology, you're not a doctor. I'm sorry. Like that'd be like <laughs> lawyers going around saying like you should call me Doctor Slayback. I have a Juris Doctor, <laughs> right? Come on. Yeah. Um. To to move away from colleges, and we can we can cut this part out. What is a topic that like or a few that like really interests you that you want to get off your chest? Maybe you don't, and we we could we can end it there. But like, what is some topic that you really find interesting and that you want to talk about? I mean, I, I really, really wanted to just dig into just how lame <laughs> the people in charge are. Yes. Like, this was just a realization I had a couple of weeks ago, like trying to think about. Like you look at Brian Stelter and you go like every time I go to the gym, like you have a moral obligation and duty to yourself and to God to not look like him. <laughs> I, 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 when I say that they're lame, I don't necessarily like want to necessarily obviously pick on people. I will leave that. I'll pick on Brian. So you, you, you can pick on you. Brian if you want. Um, but like, it's just like, they're not inspiring in the least. Like yeah. where are the, I am more inspired on a day-to-day -day basis by like obscure founders that I happen to know as a function of my job than I am of like the vast majority of people who are in elite positions. And again, I think that like the Richard Branson and the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk stuff is great because it gives people something to aspire towards, right? Like, I think the distinction here is between, and, and Teal writes about this in Zero to One, it's it's the optimization versus people creating new ideas. Yeah. And that really is the distinction. You've got the people who are optimizing just like marginal benefits, yeah. like small or, algorithms. Or for optionality, right? Like you have people, uh, the, the, the like tech people really like to uh, prioritize for optionality, whether it's yeah. like... What kind of job can I get? Or where mm -hmm. can I move? How, where can I live? What? How many people can I date at once? Like the Bay Area is the only place you run into the really strange, weird, gross thing that is polyamory. It's 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 you always 
You will never find it outside of the Bay Area. So it's very odd. And the people who do it always look like that one meme that I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and they, they always look like some kind of like soy jack, right? Like True. I was, so I was like sick today. And so I tried to go on Uber Eats to like order a burger, which I ended up not. I ended up making one. Um, but like I'd order something and it's like I was clicking on it. And it's like the top 10 were all impossible burger places. Oh. Oh. And I tried to go through and I was just like, I was like, what? Like this is like, I, I wanted a burger like this, like the top 10. And so there are certain things in society right now that feel like they're so artificial. Like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. It feels like there's like a collective like spin machine that is just like shoving this out that like is not something that people truly want. Yeah, I mean, there's always this, um, there's always this question of like, is it conspiracy or does it look like conspiracy, right? There's this old line from John Taylor Gatto. He wrote a bunch of books on uh, what he called compulsory state schooling, public schools. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he wrote in one of his books, I think in the underground history, that uh, if you look at the history of public schooling, it looks like a grand conspiracy, right? Like it has mm -hmm. all these weird things that make it like look like it has to be a conspiracy. But the scary thing about it is that it's not. It's just people following the incentives that are in front of them. Because if it's a conspiracy, you can just chop off the head and it's done, right? You can you can find the cabal, you can you know put them on trial, you can do the QAnon like like Trump's gonna like come from a helicopter and put right. on, put all the yeah. pedophiles on trial, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the reality is, it's just a lot of people following their incentives that are put in front mm -hmm. of them, and that's actually a lot scarier because that makes that's, that's not much, something you can easily fix. That's a much harder problem to fix, right? Like again, that's why I go back to again, I, I, it's either in the Acts or or in the Ephesians. Uh, in Ephesians, it's the line about like everybody kind of has their own vocation. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you really want to view this as like a spiritual uh, kind of battle, like figure out what your vocation is and lean into that. And I think a big part of that is kind of like to give Micah, Micah his due, like it is like stop being fat and like eat decently and like take pride in yourself and your community and like go to, go to church or synagogue or mosque, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And like, be invested in the future. And if you can't like, I'll, I'll be honest with people. Like for years I wanted to have, I wanted to experience the thing that, that is faith that I knew people mm -hmm. who, who had that. Right. And eventually I just kind of decided I'd fake it until I make it right. Like go to mass. Yeah. Um, try to like learn what the rosary prayers are. Like there, there's a whole reason I ended up settling on Catholicism. I wasn't raised that, but you know, do which, the, is, which is what I'm trying to do now with Judaism. Like, I don't know where I land, but like, I will go to synagogue every Friday. Yeah, and you should, and like, and you should pray. Like, you know, give me, give me whatever sign I need in order for me to have faith, mm -hmm. right? But just going through the motions of whatever that is for you in order to like see that we are not, we are not bugs on a rock, right? Like. <laughs> Contrary not, to what CNN and everyone else would like you to believe, like, right? You're you not a person to live in a pod, and your right. yeah, and your your purpose isn't merely to consume with like two O's. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you actually have something out there. So I would absolutely like tell people that, um, and I think that's that's hugely important. Uh, so and, and then for me, like, yeah, the fake it till I make it thing, like, actually resulted in what I believe to be like a transcendental experience of like faith, right? But like, that's I don't think that would have happened had I not done that. Um, mm -hmm. so there's definitely that, um, the other thing, like, I always want to get off my chest to people is like, look, uh, when we're talking about the university stuff, like 
the university is what I call, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of riffing on Peter Thiel here in, in Zero to One, I call it a mimetic meat grinder, right? Like mm -hmm. you go into it, especially if you're competent. This is where I, I think it gets really dangerous in like that upper third quartile of like competence. Um, if you're competent and like you can get stuff done and you're like pretty smart, it gets really, really dangerous because you're around all your hyper-competitive peers. You will end up turning out just like them unless you're very, very careful. And because very, what you learn how to do is less about learning and more, more, more about how, to, how do you play the game to win. Yeah, and people who end up at the elite universities are very, very good at playing that game. They wouldn't have ended up there in the first place, right? Like, right. I, like I, everyone I know who ended up at an elite university is just very good at like reverse engineering a game and playing that game. Now, that's also like a very good skill set to have if you wanted to go do something interesting, like whether that's you want to go be an artist or you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to be like a, an actually interesting researcher or scientist, though that skill of like reverse induction and smart imitation can actually be really, really good. But if it's just like mindless imitation, then it gets really, really dangerous. So like I, I view like going back to what we were saying earlier, we have a moral obligation, whether it's, it's to our children or to ourselves or to God to do what we can by the time we die to leave the world better off. Mm -hmm. Again, we each have our own vocations for doing that. For me, I think a big part of that is like showing people like if you are smart and you're competent and you're trying to work on something interesting, you do not need to go into this mimetic meat grinder. Mm -hmm. You do not need to end up a consultant at McKinsey. You do not need to end up, you know, sitting on the roof at Google. There, you, there might be something really, really interesting you want to work on, but it doesn't make sense to work on inside the incentive system of the university. Yes. And I, I and my colleagues can provide you an out to that. So like, that's a big f focus of what we're like, of what I do professionally with. Yeah. Which I think is great. Like, I think it's wonderful. Like there's you guys in, in the Teal Fellowship are one of like the two people that I think they're like, are, are specifically focusing on helping kids who don't want to go to college succeed. And to give, to give my colleagues their due, my colleagues, Michael and Danielle, are the co-founders of the Teal Fellowship. Mm -hmm. So like, they're the people who, along with Jim O'Neill and a few other people and, and, and Peter Teal, started that. And like, that was, that was around the same time I was doing the stuff I mentioned earlier originally. And like, yeah, it was way more crazy and controversial back then. Mm -hmm. And now it's like much more openly accepted. And it's, it's a stat, I mean, it has become its own status. I'm like, I'm friends with a few people with Teal Fellows, I'm friends with Jim. Um, but like you guys have been, they've been able to create something that kids want to do, yeah. which is something very difficult and, and less about that, but more, even more so that people on the outside looking in will like see as like a valuable signal. Yeah. And then you, you, you want to be careful with these kinds of things because you don't want the signal to be the end of the, the end for oh, 100%, it, right? yes. like that's, that's but also, it also does matter made. that like that thing will help them open up new Absolutely. doors. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that does matter. And like, like I said, I think like, I do think like positioned correctly, like pursuing that crazy entrepreneurial venture, if there's actually traction to it, can do that without the Teal Fellowship for mm -hmm. people, right? Like, and I, and like, I just think we, there are people we work with, right? Like there's one young man who's working on um, a, a, way, a cure to type two diabetes. That's really all I can say about it. Okay. Um, but he like dropped out of university. He looks he looks kind of crazy and like I thought for like six months he might be crazy, but the line we really like to look for is like, we're not sure if you're crazy or you're crazy awesome. And we ended up investing in him, giving him $50,000 at first to like mm -hmm. run some mouse trials and then extra hundred thousand dollars to run some more mouse trials. And he's like actually on to something. Right. And I think to myself, like, 
you know, in, in the like one in a thousand chance that he ends up actually providing some sort of like pharmacologically available cure to type two diabetes, mm -hmm. would the world really be better off if he was off sitting on the roof at Google or if he was off sitting as an analyst at Johnson and Johnson mm -hmm. or off sitting at like, because that's Johnson probably Company. where he would end up. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I do not want to like sound hyperbolic when I, when I talk about just the pure, terror that the our over-reliance on the university system has created in in our society but i think we could have a really cool really inspiring set of like elites if you want to call them that without if we just stopped relying on this institution i mean we were promised like tremendous technological change the old and, like, the old line from the old founders fund website uh, was we were promised flying cars and we got 120 characters yeah yeah right yep and so I, I, I'm slightly, let's blackpill everyone. I'm slightly pessimistic on the future of like all these, these massive technological innovations that we were promised years ago. Like, I don't, I don't think they're happening. Um, even now, like, I think what happened with Bezos and Musk is incredible. They're like privatizing the space industry, but we did this 50 years ago. We did this, we did this a while ago. And so the tech we're seeing now is stuff that like we have already known that exists. Like we've done this before. And so like our, I love what they're doing, but I'm saying our aspirations should be higher. Like I, yeah, I think there's absolutely truth that, I mean, the reality is these things are just like very, very, very hard. And the truth, especially of what, as a private entity. Yes. Yeah. Especially as a private entity. And like the real innovation of what SpaceX is doing is just reducing the cost to get one kilogram into space. That's right. right? Um, which has, it has unlocked a lot of, you know, it's easier to throw satellites up there. It's yeah. a lot easier to throw satellites into space, right? Which sounds marginal, but is actually like pretty significant. Yeah. Um, but these things are just really hard and take a really, really long time. The reality of of like the space race was we had the existential threat of the Cold War, and we had like a lot of smart German scientists and a lot of crazy American airmen. Like those two things worked really well in in America's favor, in particular. Um, Our leaders are kind of abdicated the responsibility for providing like an optimistic future. Yeah. Like, they're the they're, they're that we very present. short term. Like if I were to get blackpilled on like the America versus China question, for example, which I'm not, I'm actually like, I think weirdly optimistic on that question. Okay. I'm more blackpilled. I think that China is a more like CCP horrible. Um, they right. have a vision for the future. They right. have a 40 year plan of what they want to get done in the U S we don't have that. Right. If I were to be blackpilled on the China question, it is that it seems like from the outsider perspective looking in, the Chinese think much more intergenerationally than our really lame leaders do. Mm -hmm. Our really lame and like they, they are an atheistic culture, but like for whatever, but they believe in like the deity that is their civilization or state. We don't even believe in that. Right. Right. Like, no, we shine it. We think it's bad. We think it's evil. Right. If you're going to be an atheistic culture, I want you to like at least believe in something transcendental. If it's like yes. a transcendental Chinese like empire, whatever. Like if if you're China, if you're living in China, that's you need probably... something that pushes you forward. Because if not, you get pushed back. Right. Yeah. Now, at the end of the day, like I, I really do think like China is really unfriendly to business, which I think will really shoot them in the feet if we're good at preventing their counter. Uh, if we're good at counterintelligence, which like all leading indicators are we're not. Um, but if we're actually good at counterintelligence, we should be able to stay ahead of them for a while, at least on a couple of metrics. Um, Cause I think it is a difficult, a difficult culture to innovate in. 
um, you know, there's, there's the cultural question. Like there's this old kind of like, I wouldn't call it crypto racist because I think the word racist is thrown around too much, but like it can be painted that this idea that like the Han Chinese can't innovate. Mm-hmm. We'll sometimes hear that trotted out. That's not yeah, really so- necessarily what I'm saying. Um, it's more that if you live in a culture that's un- deeply unfriendly to business, which Xi Jinping's China certainly is, like mm-hmm. previous forms of China weren't, um, it just makes it hard to invest in the future. At the same time, if you live in a country that, like the United States seems to be grasping at trying to go on, where it's just like weirdly vindictive depending on like the whims of whatever's trending on Twitter, <laughs> that's a really difficult society to- Which my thing is, well. I, think, I think the US, or at least political leaders on the right, should should have more like should be tougher on businesses that hate the US. Whereas like if you're I want America to have the greatest corporations in the world. I want us leading, I want us dominating. However, when these corporations start attacking the essence and the soul of the United States, I'm willing to say, screw it. I'm gonna make it so that it's painful for you guys because I'm willing to say, listen, you guys are, are creating such huge damage on the US that I don't think that's right. And like BlackRock, I don't think it's right that you guys are buying houses that would go for like, I think there should be some limits on what a government can do. And this is like the annoying thing that goes back with libertarians, like no, like the government has a role and the role is in my opinion to do good and to do good for its citizens. And so you can't just abdicate all responsibility from the government. And so there are some things that you should have in place. And so things don't get too crazy. And the weird situation we are in the US right now is that you have the government and these corporations in bed protecting one another. Like I put it out as a tweet. It's like, what do you what do you call it when the government tells corporations to silence political dissidents and it listens? We have a word for that. It's not good. And so if I came to you and I said the White House is telling Facebook, Google, and Twitter to censor political dissidents and ban them, and they're doing it, that would be insane. It's happening here right now. When we think about the point, one of the points of taxes is to internalize externalities, right? Like if somebody's going around actively harming people, one of the ways that you like can compensate it and prevent it, so there's kind of like an incentive side of it, is by taxing them for doing it. Then you can also, like there's this element of like, uh, restorative kind of justice you can do on it as well as we can give the money to people who are hurt by it. Mm-hmm. And like, we could easily view like, look, if you're going to benefit from living in a, a pretty darn like f- pro business and like pro free enterprise society, like the United States is even in 2021, like, and you are going to undermine that society. And you are going to take, you're going to, you're going to build factories, create wealth, and then ship those jobs out overseas and harm the U S population of what is, you know, what you are benefiting off of, I'm not okay with that. Again, at the end of the day, everybody just follows the incentives that are put in front of them, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, one of the advantages or disadvantages the government has is it, it can set those incentives. It has a monopoly on a certain type of incentive called taxes. Yes. Uh, so like, yeah, we should just be, I don't want to say discriminatory with, with the tax policy, but if we view tax policy as like, look, one of the things we're trying to do is internalize externalities. If you, for example... Like it might make sense economically to ship these jobs overseas because of like, I don't know, the expense of uh, uh, that, that uh, the company, the countries overseas are unfairly competing with their currency manipulation. Mm -hmm. And because uh, unions domestically have made it prohibitively expensive. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Well, okay, you can follow that incentive. We're going to put an import tax on anything you produce overseas, yeah. right? Like the import taxes existed for a long time in the United States. Uh, they played a much bigger role than the income, income tax did for years. Like it's a pretty obvious solution to the problem. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it, it's one of these things where it's like the, the solutions are right in front of us mm -hmm. and we're not using them, which again, tends to be an indicator that there's somebody in the background spending a lot of money to prevent somebody from using them. Yes, that is exactly it. You have, I, I think we'll end it at that. I think that's very well put. And so you have these people in power who are funded by special interests who don't have the American people's best interest at heart. They have their own wallets. Like that's their interest. And you, you'll have. You have to appeal to that interest, hurt, the, hurt them in the wallet. Exactly. Or you can make it so, and I think this was a great point, that you have to make it so that senators and congressmen make enough money where they're not like the money that's getting flung around them. It's a lot tougher to take. Because you're getting paid 400, 350 versus just like a measly 200 versus like $200,000 as an elite is like not a good salary. And no. so you're going to have to supplement somehow because they want their kids going to elite schools. They've got two houses. They've got one in D.C., one back home. They know that they can go run for Congress, you know, especially Senate. If you get a, if you're a senator, even if you're a one term senator, you're going to have a really cushy job when you come out on the other side. Yeah, it, it even works the same way with um, with law clerks like. Yes, five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. I think some of the best best legal minds of our generation are working at big law firms because they're just because you don't make money as a federal judge. No, <laughs> you just don't. So like the people who are in that job are either like they're either not very good at it. I I think in an older generation they were actually patriotic, but that's kind of like it's, it's status, the same like reason as a status as... symbol in itself, or they're craving for some kind of power. It's the same thing with the military right now is finding it hard to get really really competent tech people work for them really hard like coders and, and the national security apparatus people who know how to use technology and so you know this the what used to be the pull was patriotism and so that's gone and so you can't pay them the money that google can you can't get them with patriotism so essentially you can offer them cool projects but not all of them are doing these cool projects so people don't join yeah, again, I think, uh, again, a lot of it comes down to incentives. Yes. Why Why is the military running all these, like, weird, like, like not center-left, but, like, far-left culturally advertising campaigns? It's very odd. It really well, is. It looks very odd, but then you start to think about it. It's like, okay, nobody believes in patriotism anymore. This is, like, the new weird crypto-patriotism crypto in America. Yes. It is, like, this kind of, you know, message. Mm -hmm. Maybe they believe in that. Like maybe they'd be willing to pass up the job working at Google or even Enduro to like, you know, fight for that. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, again, uh, it's lame. <laughs> it's all about incentives. But, but it's in the, it's, it's the incentives of the people in power. It's just, we've, we've fed our, our like elite production mechanism has just been set up in such a way, largely through the universities to produce a, to produce at the top, like the most lame people that we could have. And it's just, it's just, imagine how cool things could be. Imagine how cool things could be, Kyle. Yeah. Oh. And instead oh. we got 120 characters. Right. Um, right. Zach. 240 now, I think. But whatever oh, is it, it is. actually? Yeah. I think it's 240 now. This has been wonderful. Thanks Dude, Kyle. This has been, and for anyone listening, I say this truly, Zach Substack, which is Slay Back to the Future, is one of the most interesting things I've read. It's like I've topped, I've like top two substacks I'll read. It's it was Rob Henderson and now it's you. So you are the two now that I, I appreciate that. I, I think truly. it's 
I think it's just Zach Slayback. That's Z-A-K Slayback.substack.com, okay. I think. I'm not sure. Okay. But yeah, if you search for the name, you should find it. It's a weird enough name. Zach, thanks for coming on. This has been great. Thanks, Kyle.